This is a Drama Merchant audio production. A Dead Man's Bargain by Clive Pemberton Narrated by Nathan Schultz If you ever met me, you would ask yourself why I, young in years, should have the face of a worn old man and hair whiter than time could ever bleach it. Listen to the true story of my awful and inexplicable experience, an experience that, in one short hour, changed the colour of my hair from brown to white, and carved lines on my face that nothing will ever erase while memory lasts to haunt me. At the time of which I speak, some five years ago, I was living in a remote little town in the Midlands, which I will call L. From my earliest years, the passion of my life had been music, and the annuity of 200 a year allowed me to follow my natural inclinations without fear of being harassed by financial difficulties. Insignificant and even unimportant though L was, it yet possessed one object of interest, the parish church. This was a fine old building erected in the reign of Elizabeth, rich in stained glass and well-preserved stone frescoes. But its greatest attraction to me, at any rate, was the organ, a superb instrument combining the immortal work of Father Smith with modern improvements in mechanism by the latter-day builders. The whole instrument had been reconstructed and made perfect by the generosity of a rich patron some two years before, and on the completion of the work, a new organist was appointed a stranger to L, named Reuben Chesselton. I suppose it was our equal enthusiasm in the one pursuit that drew us together, for in a very short time, Reuben Chesselton and I were firm and inseparable companions. But as time went on, and I got to know him better, I found that he was a man possessed of some very extraordinary theories regarding the supernatural, and in the creed of spiritualism he thoroughly believed. At first his extraordinary doctrines, delivered at lightning speed and with a kind of hysterical excitement that invariably seized him when on the subject, astonished me not a little, and would have led many to incline towards the belief that he was mad. But constant and close contact with the man had given me a deeper insight into his temperament than others possessed and as I never attempted to argue the matter with him, or try to convince him to the contrary, no harm was done. There was seldom an evening that I did not spend with him in the empty church, listening while he played as only he could. In my mind's eye I can see him now, his great shaggy head thrown back, eyes closed in a sort of ecstatic trance, and the most wonderful melodies ravishing the air as his hands swept over the keys. Strange melodies they were sometimes that his fancy would conceive, and if some of those impromptu pieces he played to me could be reproduced, they would, I'm convinced, rank with some of the most finest compositions the world has ever heard. It was about a year after the beginning of our somewhat curious intimacy that I first noticed the beginning of a strange change in my friend. He had reportedly told me that he had confided in me as in no other living person, for indeed I was his only companion, and he seemed to possess no other friends or acquaintances. He was always a man of moods, 
now grave, now happy, and subject to curious lapses of sullenness when he appeared to be thinking deeply over something known only to himself. It was summertime, and after the usual practice in the church one evening, he returned with me to my room. Once or twice I was on the point of asking him what was amiss, for he seemed to be labouring under some excitement that he found difficult to suppress. For a long time after we had finished the meal, he sat silent, his eyes fixed vacantly on the wall, and his lips moving rapidly as though he were repeating some set formula to himself over and over again. Suddenly he turned to me, his voice wonderfully quiet and well under control. "'Harold,' he said, "'I'm going away for a while.' "'Going away?' I repeated. "'Where to, and what for?' "'I am going away from here,' he went on, "'not appearing to notice my questions, "'because I cannot do what I have to do here. "'What have you to do which cannot be done here?' "'I asked curiously. "'He was silent for a moment. "'Then he seemed to rouse himself, "'and his voice sounded clear and distinct. "'As you know,' he said, fixing his eyes, "'the most wonderful eyes ever set in a man's head, "'on mine,' I have confided things to you that nobody save myself knows. Have you noticed that I have been away every Wednesday night for the past six weeks? Why, yes, I replied quickly, but I did not like to. Quite so, he said, lifting his thin white hand. But I want you to know why I have been away and what took me away. I have been attending seances, spiritualistic seances. I was silent as I heard this and he went on again quickly after a short pause. "'Harold, why can you not think as I do?' he cried, a note of pettish irritation in his voice. "'I tell you that great marvels can be unfolded by those who return for a fleeting space from the other side. Something will be revealed to me tomorrow night, and then, and then—' My thoughts had been wandering a little when he commenced speaking, but as he said this my attention was arrested in an instant. How can anything be revealed to you tomorrow night? I said, looking closely at him. You don't mean that you... that you... I broke off as he leaned swiftly towards me. This I do tell you, he said in a kind of awed whisper. Tomorrow night, myself and one medium will await that which I have been told will be given to me. Such a melody as the world has never yet heard the equal of will be given to me Note by note by note. By whom? I said sharply, as he suddenly checked himself. He sat silent and thoughtful for a moment. That I cannot tell you, he replied at last. But this I do promise you, Harold. You shall be the first to hear the wonderful melody, be it what it is. He dropped his voice to a thrilling whisper. What if it should be so stupendously unearthly as to be unfit for mortal ears? The suddenly conceived ideas seemed to move him to ungovernable excitement. I rose and paced the floor with eager, nervous strides. For my part, I sat silent and thoughtful. The idea was preposterous, even fraught with a vague suggestion of evil that struck with a warning note within my prosaic being. Chesselton, I said suddenly, looking up at him, I'm going to ask you to do, or rather not to do something. He paused and looked at me with diluted eyes. Well, he said quickly, I want you not to do what you, what you have just told me you were going to do. He made a quick movement with his hands. Why do you ask me such impossible things? He said. 
or because I instinctively feel that some evil will come of it, I rejoined boldly. If we were meant to, to... Enough, he interposed. What I have told you, I shall do. Remember, I promise you that you shall be the first to hear it. Nothing shall prevent you hearing it first. Think of me tomorrow night. The following day he left L, before anybody was up and about. It was a blistering hot day, the hottest of that summer, and situated in the cup-like valley as the town was, it was almost insufferable. All that never-to-be-forgotten day, I felt strangely depressed and relentless. I could not shake off the vague foreboding of a nameless disaster that seemed hanging over me. During the afternoon, the barometer fell with that sudden and ominous rush that always heralds the approaching thunderstorm. Tired with doing nothing all day and still overshadowed by that same feeling of depression, I determined to walk to the church in the cool of the evening and spend an hour at the organ. The air was still humid and oppressive when I started, although the great heat had gone with the hazing of the sun by a bank of black, uprising clouds. I noticed them as I waited outside the verger's cottage while he fetched the keys. It looks as if a storm was brewing trench, I said, pointing to the sullen bank of clouds. Aye, he replied, shading his eyes with his hand. It do that, to be sure, and it'll be honest before we expect it, I reckon. I wouldn't be too long if I were you, sir. It will be rain when it does come down. I agreed with him, and having taken the keys, went to the church. Having let myself in, I locked the door behind me, and mounted the gallery steps to the organ loft. The church, even the bright daylight, was always dim and somewhat gloomy, owing to every window being composed of richly coloured stained glass. Now, with the gathering murky gloom without, the interior was almost completely dark, only the white stone pillars and the alabaster statues gleaming white and indistinct at the far end below. I should explain here that when the instrument had been renovated and enlarged, a water-driven engine had been installed, thereby rendering the services of a bellowsman unnecessary. Afterwards, I would have given the world if another had been with me, but I am anticipating. Having lighted the desk lamps and uncovered the keyboards, I pulled down the lever that controlled the engine, and from the vault far below, I heard the dull thud-thud of the pistons as they drove the air into the bellows. In a few moments I was lost in a world of melody. And I put fancy after fancy into execution. The minute slipped into long after the hour I had intended to stop.
Suddenly I lifted my hands from the keys and closed my eyes as the gilt music support on the desk before me glinted like an electric spark. It was the gleaming flash of lightning that had stealthily darted from the window on my left and had been reflected in the brass rest. With my hands grasping the stops, I listened intently. The rain was pattering down on the roof above with harsh force. And yes, faint but unmistakable was the distant mutter and roll of thunder. Quite suddenly, more suddenly than I can describe, I was seized with a strange sensation which everybody has felt at some time when in an empty building, the sensation that I was not alone and was being watched. I sat perfectly rigid, straining my ears to hear what, I do not know, but while I would have given anything to have looked behind me, I found myself powerless to move. How long I sat thus I do not know, but a second gleam of lightning far more vivid than the first recalled me to action. Seizing the handle that controlled the engine, I turned it off, then pulled the knob at the ledge that covered the keyboards. It would not move. Something seemed to be holding it back. I tugged and pulled at it, but to no purpose, and as my strange nervousness, it was positive fear by now, kept momentarily increasing, I at last desisted, for my one desire was to get outside despite the avalanche of rain that was descending upon the roof above me. The last breath of wind ebbed out of the empty bellows, with a curious ticking sound, then amid a strange, deathly still, low both within and without, I turned out one of the gas jets, and as I did so, a peculiar thing happened. A draught, faint yet perfectly distinct, swept behind me, but with an indescribable feeling of terror, I noticed that the flame beside me did not flicker in the slightest way. A kind of frantic desire seized me to tear madly down the steps and out into the raging storm, for fragments of Ruben and Chesselton's strange conversation recurred to me, and I try as I would, could not shut them out. With a sudden effort, I turned out the remaining gas jet, and in the black darkness groped my way to the door. I had just reached it, when I again distinctively felt a slight stirring in the air, just what a draught would be, if caused by somebody passing. Down the steps I crept, one by one, the lightning blazing at the windows with blinding brilliancy and alarming rapidity. To get to the door, I had to walk the whole length and aisle, and then, with my heart wildly beating, I sped it up, twisting my head round mechanically at every yard. I was about two-thirds up, perhaps, when suddenly stopped. What was that? I strained my ears, my heartbeats humming in my head. It came again, sending a thrill of horror through me, for clearly enough I had heard the sudden throb of the engine far below and then the sound of the bellows filling. Like the crash of brazen cymbals in my ears, it was borne in upon me that I was not alone. Somebody had started the engine. Somebody was in the building with me. Summoning all my presence of mind, I called out, Who is there? The echo of my voice was drowned in an appealing crash of thunder, but it died away. 
I fancied that a wild laugh came from the gallery. And then, how can I describe what followed? I cannot, for my brain reels at the recollection of it. The storm seemed to suddenly subside. The rain ceased to clatter on the roof, and in an unbroken silence, the organ began to sound. If I could command the language and descriptive power of the greatest mind that ever lived, I could not convey the faintest conception of the weird music that flooded the empty building and poured into my shivering ears, but instinctively I knew that it was a dead march, unearthly and of such somber grandeur as no living brain of man ever conceived. It seemed to tell of phases that are faintly imagined and seen, shadow-like in a dream, and awestruck and bewildered. I crouched down on the cold stone floor, covered my ears for which I knew such a melody was never meant for human ears to hear. How long it lasted? I cannot say. But it gradually died away as gently and imperceptibly as a summer breeze. And as it did so, the clock in the tower slowly struck nine. Then action came to me, and springing to my feet, I flew to the door and fumbled with the key. The rain was falling heavily without as I tore open the door, and I felt that strange, soft wind I had felt twice before pass me from behind. It passed me, passed me into the night, and was gone. How I got home, I never knew, but the sequel to this strange night's experience came two hours later. A telegram came for me with news that Reuben Chesselton had died suddenly at half-past eight at the conclusion of a spiritualistic seance, and as the last notes of that terrible dead march died away, and I opened the door, the clock in the tower struck nine, and I felt that wind pass me. You have been listening to a Drama Merchant audio production. Created, narrated, and edited by Nathan Schultz, otherwise known as the Drama Merchant. All sound effects were homemade and edited by him in his garage. I hope you enjoyed this tale. If you have an idea for a story or a commercial project you need a voiceover actor for, please get in touch at thedramamerchant at hotmail.com.